You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, as Dave read, will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. The men have been walking through the book of Romans in our men's Bible study and thought it's so good. We'll bring it to the whole church. Not the, not the teaching, but just the, the text, all right? For many, a, a new year brings a sense of, of unbridled optimism. You know, as one year closes and another year begins, a lot of people attack the new year thinking, man, anything is possible. There's almost limitless opportunities. And in some ways, this, this optimistic outlook on the new year, it doesn't have to be all bad. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't set New Year's resolutions. Maybe you have set some goals for yourself this year. Maybe some of those are even spiritual in nature. You want to read your Bible more consistently. You want to pray more effectively. Maybe you feel a renewed sense of urgency to fight that stubborn sin that's, that, that seems to be clinging to you so tightly. Laziness, pornography, bitterness or some other life-dominating sin, this new year has brought a, a, a new vigor to you. Well, what I hope to do this morning uh, from the text is, is to root our hope not in the turning of the calendar, but instead to root this optimistic view or to root this hope that we have in our new position in Christ that happened not at the turning of a calendar, but it happened when we were born again, if indeed you've been born again. And so we might state our passage this way, or the point of our passage this way. In union with Christ, change is not only possible, but certain. In union with Christ, change is not only possible, but certain. Now that's not to say that change happens quickly or that change happens instantaneously. Many of us can testify that that is indeed not the case. As much as we wish, it was just instantaneous. But God will sanctify His people. And so there's hope for us this morning. There's hope for change. And I think our text gives us really four reasons we might have hope for change. The first is this. There's hope for change because you have died and risen with Christ. Look there in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul opens chapter 6 with, with a series of, of questions. You see that question in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This argument is actually, or this question is actually something that Paul's probably anticipating that his detractors would, would throw at him. And if you read, if you just allow your eyes to glance up to chapter 5, verse 20, Paul makes a statement which might provoke someone to ask this question. Look there at the end of chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a statement to make. God's grace is so massive that as sin increased, Grace increased even more. There's enough grace in God to cover every sin, past, present, and future, for all those who would come to Him in faith. 
So Paul is, is making the argument at the end of chapter 5 that even though the law in and of itself, it's good, it's right, it's from God Himself, but it didn't ease or, or nullify, it definitely didn't erase the consequences of sin and the gravity of sin. But because of God's grace, Sin was sort of setting its own trap. So when the law came, hearts rebelled against the law because once we realized there was a standard, we didn't want to keep the standard. So sin actually increased with the coming of the law. But as sin increased with the coming of the law, God's grace abounded even more. So the coming of the the law actually resulted in, in greater transgression, but ultimately that magnifies the grace of God in Christ because as sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. As rebellion went deeper, God's grace went deeper still. So Paul is anticipating this, this objection then to his, his message of the gospel, that God's grace abounds above all transgression. The objection is this, you can't talk about God's grace like that. You can't tell people that as sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. You can't preach Christ that way because if you do, people will want to take advantage of God's grace and they'll want to say, you know what, I'm just going to live however I want because the more I sin, the more grace I get. And after all, Paul, don't we want more grace? So maybe I should sin to get more grace. So our whole section is Paul's response to that uh, objection and his initial Answer comes in verse 2, first off, with just an outright denial. May it never be. The, the, I, I say this all the time when I get to Romans 6, but the King James is a little bit interpretive there, but I like it. God forbid. That's not what the Greek says, but Paul's saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. D- d- does grace encourage sin? Of course not. And then he sets out to answer, why not? And he answers in the form of of a rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer really, if you read into Paul's rhetorical question, really, really the answer is you won't. How can we who have died to sin continue in it? Paul's answer by, by the use of a rhetorical question is you won't. But notice then that Paul doesn't say you won't commit sins. He's not saying you you won't commit acts of sin. He says you will not continue in sin. So if you read Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, in order to understand it, sin is is this ruler, it's this tyrannical power, it's this authority that rules over those who are outside of Christ, ruled over you uh, before you were in Christ. It dominates. It enslaves. But for those who have come to Christ, they've died to sin. Meaning that the power of sin, that rule, that authority, that enslavement, it's been broken. And sin is no longer the believer's master or ruler. They have a new Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's talking about this idea of of being transferred from one domain to another, from one realm to another. You used to be in sin. Now you are in Christ. Or to pull in, again, language from Romans 5, you used to be in Adam. Now you are in Christ. To borrow from Colossians, you used to be in the domain of darkness, but you've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this this 
realm transfer from in sin to in Christ, it's so dramatic that Paul uses this, this imagery of death. You've died to sin. That is, there's been this break in the tyrannical rule of sin that it exercised over you when you came to Christ. So how then did this, did you move? How did you move from in sin to in Christ? From the rule of sin to, to under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, verses three to, 3 to 5 set out to answer that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Well, Paul says that we were, this transfer took place when we were baptized into Christ. That is, uh, uh, to say it this way, at the time of your conversion, the time you, you, you turned from your sin and you trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when, when the Spirit of God gave you eyes to see the glory of the gospel, at the time of conversion, which Paul would associate really, really closely with baptism, you see in Acts 2, when somebody got saved, they got subsequently baptized, you were moved from this one location to another, from in sin to in Christ. You used to exist here, now you exist here. You used to be under the domain of darkness, now you are in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And as a result of this, this transfer, you are so closely identified with Christ that what He has accomplished benefits you. The, the, the work that He has done flows down to His people. All spiritual blessings come to us in Christ Jesus. And we are so closely united with Christ or so closely welded together with Christ that it might even be said of, of God's people that they have died and risen with Christ. They have died and risen with Him. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say sin dies. He says that we died. And we die to sin. And you know, we may be more familiar with this sort of language than we, than we at first think. This idea of, uh, of dying to something. When someone says something like, oh, that person is dead to me. What are they saying? They're actually saying, I'm not going to allow that person's thoughts or words or actions to influence me any longer. That's sort of the way Paul is using it here. That's sort of what he's driving at, that when we say we have died with Christ, we're saying we're, we're dead to sin. Sin no longer exercises the same type of influence that it used to exercise over me. So it's Christ's work. It's Christ's work that is applied to His people, that you benefit from His work. In union with Christ, we share in the benefits of His death that He accomplished. And Paul's point here is we cannot possibly remain in the dominating control of sin when we've been united with Christ because we've been moved. We've been moved to this different realm, so to speak. And the purpose of this in verse 4 well, so that we might walk in newness of life. If you've died with Christ, Paul implies that you've risen with Christ. And if, if you've risen with Christ, the purpose of that is that you might live a new life. A life that resembles the life that Jesus Christ lived. 
And so Paul's argument is that grace is the furthest thing from encouraging sin. Remember the objection. Paul, you can't preach grace like that. It'll encourage people to sin. And Paul says God's grace is actually the furthest thing from encouraging sin. Instead, it means believers are freed from the enslaving power of sin that they might walk in newness of life. Grace doesn't lead to sinful living and wickedness. It leads instead to righteousness, to godly living. We might think about it this way. As Paul highlights grace, it's meant to motivate us to love and to please God. And we might think about it in terms of, you know, we talked about this in men's Bible study, but if a child, say, say a teenage child sins, and he is genuinely uh, broken over his sin, and he confesses his sin to his dad. And dad, with, with tears in his eyes, says, Son, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm hurt, but I forgive you. There's nothing in this world that you could do that would cause me to abandon you. Is the son's first thought going to be, sweet, I'll just go commit more sins? If he's genuinely broken, if he's genuinely repentant, if he's genuinely confessing to his dad, and his dad offers real heart, uh, you know, forgiveness from his heart, that's going to motivate the child to want to obey dad, not to rebel against dad. So our hope is rock solid this morning because it's grounded in, in God's grace through union with Christ. You can change because you've died and you've risen with Christ. Secondly, there's hope for change because you are not who you once were. Look in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Paul says, the old person, who you were before you were united with Christ, that person has been crucified. And so we know from God's Word, and we know, honestly, from our own experience, that the, the old man here, or the old self that was crucified, it, it can't mean that now we, we are perfect. It can't mean that now we, we never sin. You know, we'll get to sort of the end of this section here where Paul starts giving commands not to present yourself to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Right, Those commands make no sense if the old man being crucified means I don't sin anymore. It also would mean that none of us are actually in this position. Our own Christian experience would, would say, well, I sin. So the, the, this idea of the old self being crucified, well, we know it can't mean that we're now perfect or we won't be tempted or we won't sin. Instead, our old self refers to who we were outside of Christ. Who we were outside of Christ. It refers to that person who was in bondage, who was enslaved, who was unregenerate, who was in unbelief, who was unrepentant, who was not justified. That person, the person that was controlled and dominated, that person has been crucified with 
Christ. And notice, that's, that's past tense. This is something that's happened. It's something that's been uh, gifted to you. So the emphasis in this text is not the need to continually die to sin, to continually be crucified. Instead, the emphasis falls on the present reality that we all experience. I'm no longer who I used to be because I'm in Christ. Not because of my own efforts, not because of what I've done, not because I've worked extra hard, but because I'm united with Christ and in union with Christ. I've died and risen with Him, and the old man has been put to death. The old self has been killed. Well, for what, for what reason? Well, like, like crucifixion kills a person, so Paul says the body of sin might be done away with. And now, again in verse 6, the power of sin is broken. It's rendered powerless in terms of its dominating rule and enslaving power. And we made this point last week um, that this is these blessings, everything in union with Christ, it comes to every believer. It comes to every believer because, again, it's not based on our merits. It's based on the work of Christ. So if you're in Christ this morning, there's hope for change. There's always hope for change for every person in Christ because they are not enslaved anymore. And so Paul, he, he, he's, he's making his argument. He kind of circles back in verse 7 to this idea of dying with Christ. The reason you can say, I am no longer enslaved to sin, for, in verse 7, if you've died, then you are free. If you've died, then you are free. And so Paul begins this, this, this imagery here that will actually continue through all of chapter 6, but it's this imagery of, of slavery. And what Paul is driving at through Romans chapter 6 is that we all serve something. We all serve someone, either sin or God and righteousness. You know, sometimes people are hung up in, in, in coming to Christ thinking, I don't want to give up my freedom. I don't want to give up my ability to do what I want. But the Bible says really clearly that, that, that doing your thing in your way, in your timing to fulfill your own desires is not freedom. It's not freedom. That's the whole thing he's been arguing. That's actually what the Bible calls slavery. And in fact, true freedom is experienced in serving God, in living a, a, a righteous life in light of receiving the gift of salvation that God has given. True freedom is found in serving Him because that's what you were designed to do. That's what you were created to do. Your freedom is not linked to the fulfillment of your individual desires and living my, my life on my terms. But true freedom is found in serving Christ, doing what you were made to do, which is to glorify God with your life. And the only place a sort of freedom is found is in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. So again, Paul undermines this idea that grace would lead to a life of wickedness. Instead, if, if, you, if you no longer serve sin, then you are serving God in righteousness. To be free from sin is to be free to obey God. You know, if you are a Christian this morning, be aware of, of the possibility of this false, I, I call it like a false pride that can spring up in our hearts. And it, it, it says something like this, oh, I could never 
please God. Nothing I do ever glorifies God. You know, I've shared with you before doing counseling with, with young seminary students, and I would say, well, what, you know, were there some ways that you please God this week? And they'd say, well, I did bring Mary to church, and I did witness to my coworker, but, you know, after I thought long and hard about it, I did that out of pride, and, and, and they'll list all these reasons why there's no way they could have possibly ever pleased God. Well, I get the impulse. I understand our hearts are deceitful. We can do good things for, for bad reasons. I get the impulse, but, but I want to I have a warning here that even though that sounds like humility, it might be a false sense of pride because in essence, we might be denying God's ability to change you through union with Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through His Word. If God calls you to please Him, we'll see in a minute, He gives you the grace to do what He calls you to do. The reality is that change is not only possible in Christ, but it will happen. Again, slower than we want. Maybe not in the exact areas that we want. We not only have hope in this life, Paul says, but in verse 8, as well in verse 5, we have a future hope as well tied to our union with Christ. Paul's been arguing, you, you died and rose with Christ. This is a reality for you if you are in Christ. And then he, he takes a, a, a time out here to point us to, now, what else, what else that guarantees is a future resurrection, a real physical res- resurrection. This idea of dying and rising with Christ spiritually does not negate the fact that we will one day live with Him following the resurrection of our Bodies, those who are resurrected with Him spiritually will be guaranteed of this future resurrection and life. Again, because of our union with Christ. He's the first fruits. He's the one who went before us. So we have hope for change because we've died and risen with Christ. We have hope for change because the old man has been crucified. You are not who you were. We have hope for change because we are alive to God. We are alive to God. Look there in verse 9. Through 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's something that sets Jesus' resurrection apart from the other miraculous stories that we read about in the Old and New Testament of somebody coming back to life, right? Lazarus comes to mind. Jesus demonstrated his authority over death by, by standing in front of a tomb and telling a dead man to get up, and the dead man got up. But Lazarus died again, right? I imagine Lazarus on his deathbed thinking, here we go. I've been through this once. But Lazarus had to die again. Paul says Jesus' resurrection is different. His was a once-for-all resurrection, never to die again. Though Jesus was not guilty of his own personal sin, he he still brought himself under the consequences of sin. He was under the penalty of death that is the result of transgression. Again, not because of his own sin, but because of ours. 
But the resurrection proves that Jesus is not under that penalty any longer. He's not under the penalty of sin, which is death. The power of sin and death and hell and the grave are broken. And we, we, we know that and we trust that because Jesus is no longer in the grave. And, and Paul affirms here, he will never be brought back under death's dominion. He will never be brought back under sin's penalty. This is a once-for-all death. It was a once-for-all event. And Paul says in verse 10 that since Jesus' death to sin, not his son, but ours, Jesus' death to sin was a once-for-all event, then our death to sin, our dying with him, is a once-for-all event that we must be constantly reminded of. You and I, we, we may not always live like we've died to sin's power. We may not always live like we've died to this. In fact, we often don't. But that just means we're living out of step with what is true. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we're living inconsistent with with who we are in Christ. The goal, then, of the Christian life is to be progressively conformed to who we are in Jesus. We're not only declared righteous, but we're set free from sin's dominating power. And over the course of our lives, these two realities, by God's grace, are coming closer and closer together. And one day we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And here's what's cool about what what Paul does here in this passage. Jesus died once for all. That was like a one-time event, he says. But the life He lives, He lives to God. He died once for all, but his life is a present and eternal reality. He emphasizes this life that Jesus has, the life he lives. He lives to God. He's intentionally putting life, lives, lives together to emphasize the ongoing reality and result of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, for for God's people, we might be comforted this morning that He is alive and He is providing in every way for those who are reliant on Him. He is alive and He is providing in every way for those who are reliant on Him. There's a question for us to consider. Is the power that you need to change is the power that you need to change in that sticky area that will not go away. Year after year, it seems to to find its way to wiggle back into your heart. Is the power you need to, to change greater than the power demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, of course not. Of course not. And if that's true, then there's hope for you to change. Because the power that, that, that raised Christ from the dead is operating in you to conform you to the image of Christ. And so for 10 verses, Paul just lays out this, this reality in which we exist, this new position in Christ. You've died with Christ, and when you died with Him, you died to the power of sin. And you are risen with Christ. And when you are risen with Christ, that enslaving power is broken so that you might walk in newness of life. You're raised to live this new life. And then in verse 11, he does something interesting. He says, now, believe it. Believe it. Consider yourselves, he says, or reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
That consider or reckon it means to hold a particular view about something. So to so, so he's saying, I've laid out what your position is in Christ. Now, reckon yourself this way. Consider this to be true about yourself. You are indeed in Christ Jesus. So everything to this point through verses 1 to 10 is something that, that has happened to you, that Christ has accomplished for you. And now he gives a, a, a few commands. And interesting, the first, interestingly, the first command is, believe this. You know, my, my question is, what comes to mind when you think about who am I? Who am I? I'm created. I'm an image bearer. I'm a sinner. I'm justified by grace. I'm a sinner in process, Lord willing, of becoming like Christ. What comes to mind when you think, who, who am I? Well, Paul says one of the most fundamental things you should t- take to heart about yourself is that you've, you've died with Christ and you've risen with Him. Consider this to be true about yourself. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we should, we should think rightly about our relationship with sin. We should think correctly about our relationship with sin. We can reject a sort of defeatist attitude or an attitude of blame shifting. Well, that's got to be someone else's fault. Or I guess this is just my burden to bear. I guess I'm just going to be enslaved to this son for the rest of my life. Or this is just how I was raised. Or my body is the core thing that's causing me to sin. Now I know there are legitimate, what we call like outer man issues, issues of the body. Some of those have hit close to home for me, so I'm not trying to make uh, a light or paint with a broad brush here, but I, I do want to say we live in a time where, where it's easy to sort of pin your behavior on any number of diagnoses that are out there. For any sinful behavior, you can find a, a diagnosis. And you could sort of shift the blame either to your body or to your circumstances. We can just consider one example really fast from what's called the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. It's sort of the guide by which, you know, if people are diagnosed with different disorders. And so we can just take, take an example like oppositional defiant disorder. Now, again, I'm not making fun if your child or someone you love has been diagnosed. Actually, my goal is to sort of infuse hope into this diagnosis, which seems untouchable, untreatable, helpless and hopeless. My hope is sort of infuse hope for change. Because the things that are listed under this diagnosis are things that Christ has come to set you free from. Here's how someone is diagnosed. If they exhibit four of the following symptoms over a six-month period, often loses temper, is often touchy or easily annoyed, is often angry and resentful, argumentative, defiant, often argues with authority figures, 
with adults, often actively defies or refuses to comply with requests from authority figures or with rules, deliberately annoys others. I'm guilty. Often blames others for his or her mistakes or behaviors. Vindictiveness has been spiteful at least twice in the last six months. You see, the the danger of of the label is that it, it makes change seem so far out of reach. I can't help that. But when we look at the list, we can see that God gives grace for all of these. God has come to set people free from vindictiveness and anger and rebellion against authority. God gives grace to overcome these sorts of things that are listed there. So one way we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God is to talk correctly about our sin. And by not implying, again, I'm not trying to pick fights where I don't need to, but not implying that we're not free then to obey God because in Christ we're free. This, this verb is actually to consider, to reckon. It's actually in the present tense, which means it's something that we must continually do. Paul commands his readers to think correctly about their standing with sin in relation to their standing with God and to do it over and over and over and over. Reckon yourself this way. Reckon yourself this way. Reckon yourself this way. You know, there is hope for change because every day, if you've been united with Christ, every day this new year, every morning you wake up, you wake up as someone united to Christ. And that is not in jeopardy. That is not in jeopardy. You will wake up as someone who is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only thing in jeopardy is whether we will think correctly about what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished for us. Well, there's hope for us because we've died and risen with Christ. I've got some, oh, I I see what happened there. (laughs) Sorry. I'm like, why is this tugging on me? Oh, there is hope because you've died and risen with Christ. Because when that happened, the old man was crucified. There's hope for us because you are alive to God. And lastly, this morning, there's wonderful hope for change because God provides the grace to do what he commands. God provides the grace to do what he commands. Look there in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We'll come back to verse 14 in a minute. So in verse 11, we got the positive command. Right? Consider yourself, reckon yourself this way. Do this. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in verses 12 and 13, we get some negative commands, or you might call them prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't allow sin to reign in your mortal body. So we're sort of presented with this tension in the text. Didn't Paul just say sin won't reign? Sins and you won't be enslaved to sin. Now he's commanding us not to allow it to reign. What's going on? Well, as we've been arguing, our growth in Christ is certain, but it is not without God-given, Holy Spirit-empowered effort on our behalf. 
Ultimately, we look back and recognize that God gives us the grace to grow and change, but Paul implores us here, do not present your bodies, do not present your instruments or your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Remember that the the crucifixion of the old self, the crucifixion of the old man, was not the eradication of any and all inclination towards sin. We still wrestle with the flesh. The flesh is still deceitful. We're still wrapped up and entangled by certain sins. So we must make every effort towards growth by refusing to allow sin to reign, Paul says, in our mortal bodies. The reason we still have to make every effort is we have these mortal bodies. One day we will put on immortality. We we said we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. But for now, we exist in this world with these bodies that are wasting away. I don't think here that Paul means like bodies are inherently bad, right? It's not that our bodies are bad, but our souls are good. It's not that. It's that the old man is dead, but we still wrestle with the flesh. We still exist in this evil world. And therefore, we have to be diligent not to be controlled by the selfish desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. You are free from sin and sin's enslaving power, but this must be lived out in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment Decisions about how we live and think and act. Paul says it a different way in verse 13. Do not allow any part of yourself to be used as an instrument for the purposes of sin. The point is that those who have died to sin must not make themselves available to be used by King Sin, by this tyrannical ruler. Don't present yourself as a slave to this tyrannical ruler because you've been set free from that. The prohibition, this idea of members, it's it's stop using the things that God has given you to serve sin. You heard it even in uh, David's prayer this morning. Lord, you've given us brains, but our brains often go this way. Right? So what's Paul saying? These members of your body, quit presenting the members of your body as instruments for sin, but present them as instruments for righteousness. Every part of yourself, your brain, your eyes, your mouth, all of it to God. Instead, use every part of you to serve Him. You know, that word could actually be translated weapons. Present every part of you as a weapon for righteousness. Is there a more worthy goal in 2023 than to stop presenting ourselves as instruments for unrighteousness, but to present ourselves to God so that we might walk in righteousness? And in Paul's typical fashion, he doesn't either begin or end with a list of do's and don'ts. He begins and ends with who you are in Christ. And that's what he does in our text this morning. He returns back to our new position, our union with Christ, drawing our attention away from us and our own abilities and our own strengths, and he points us back to the work of Christ, reminding us that sin will have no dominion over you. You are free from sin, even if you don't always act like it. Sometimes we're like a prisoner who asks to be chained back up for a minute. But you are not dominated. 
And Paul says it's because you're no longer under law, but under grace. You're no longer under law, but under grace. Remember some of the things we said about what the law brought about. Again, the law was good. It was from God. It's perfect. It's righteous. But the law brought about the the knowledge of sin. The law brought about the wrath. The, The law brought about transgression. The law brought about an increase in transgression. And you're not there anymore. You're not under that anymore. You're not under wrath. You're not under under the power of sin. You aren't tied to the law and its consequences. Instead, you are tied to Christ and the rewards with which He won for His people. You exist in a new realm in which you are free from sin and free to serve God. In other words, Paul says you are under grace. You are under grace. In... C.S. Lewis wrote that book, you know, the Screw Tape Letters, and it's it's a senior demon writing to a younger demon about how to best tempt this man away from Christ, away from serving Christ, away from praying, away from anything that would please God. And there are some really insightful things in the book about temptation and man's heart and and how we are tempted. And what's interesting in the preface to C.S. Lewis's book, he wrote this. Some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years' study in moral and ascetic theology. So he's saying, man, a lot of people have read the screw tape letters or read about temptation and said, man, Clive Staples Lewis, you must have studied the habits of man. You must have really went to school and thought about this. And he says they forgot that there is an equally reliable, though less creditable, way of learning how temptation works. My heart. He says, I know how this works because I know my own heart. And this morning, we all have a a sense of what C.S. Lewis is talking about. We all have a sense of, man, my heart, it can be so deceitful. And I can become so discouraged by my sin. And I can become so disheartened. When I I think about the wickedness within and the selfishness that oftentimes drives me, the desires of my heart, my failures before God, and we can so quickly become discouraged and overwhelmed by the weight of our own sin that we fail to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why I hoped as a church we could begin the new year with these words ringing in our ears from verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. In union with Christ, change is not only possible but it's certain even when it's slower than we want. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for giving us all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. May we consider ourselves dead to sin and and alive to you in Christ. May we live consistent with who you've declared us to be. May we walk in hope as we think about change, as we think about sanctification, as we think about our own son. Lord, may we be motivated by your grace and not by prideful efforts of our own. In Jesus' name, amen.